0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Crispian Chan grew up in the suburbs of Perth. His parents were migrants from Hong Kong and they ran a popular Chinese restaurant called The Man Lin. Then in September 1988, when Crispian was just eight years old, the family was woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call had been a terrible fire at the family restaurant. At first, they assumed it was a gas leak. But then the police established the place had been firebombed with a Molotov cocktail. At the same time, Perth was being plastered with posters demanding Asians out and attacking other ethnic groups like Jewish Australians. The organisation behind the posters was a neo-Nazi group calling itself the Australian Nationalist Movement, led by a man named Jack Van Tongeren. More Chinese restaurants were firebombed and it became clear that this was part of a concerted terrorist campaign right here in Australia. This is the subject of the latest season of the ABC podcast Unravel called Firebomb, which has led Crispian to recall that dangerous time. And to think about the motivation of the man behind these attacks. Hi, Crispian. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Like I said, your parents were from Hong Kong. What Mm. brought your dad to Australia in the first place? My dad and
0: his identical twin brother, who actually came over as well. Um, They came from a very poor family in Hong Kong. And um, being the eldest in the family, the family felt that it was best for them to moved to Australia and to study there and to hopefully find work and stay with a the family there, their auntie and uncle there who were sponsoring them, um, and to help provide a living for the family back in Hong Kong. So my father and his identical twin brother came over in the early 60s and they stayed in Sydney. His auntie and uncle had a restaurant. So they started as kitchen hands and worked their way up in the kitchens and then eventually they, after school, worked in other uh, restaurants
1: around Sydney. So then he and his brother moved out west to WA, and that's where he met your mum. How did he meet your mum? So he worked at the restaurant scene in Perth, and mum was
0: waitressing in one of the restaurants that he was working at in Subiaco, and mum was working as a clerk in the daytime for Princess Margaret Children's Hospital,
1: and then at nighttime to make a little bit of extra income, she waitressed at the restaurant's. I've always wanted to be a guest at a Chinese wedding because weddings seem to be all about the guest rather than the bride and groom. They seem like extraordinarily festive occasions. Tell me about what you know about your dad's wedding to your mum.
0: Well, it wasn't just a wedding with my mum and dad. It was also a bit of a double wedding, actually, because at the same time, my dad's identical twin brother fell in love with my mother's oldest sister, who was also working in Perth as well. Get out. Really? So, so the two yeah. brothers married the two sisters? Exactly. It, it makes an interesting thing, especially when you throw in that little factor of the identical brother. So, you know, in, my cousins and I, we kind of joke that we have the same father genetically, <laughs> genetically, which is a bit of a funny story to share. But they got married on the same day, and they even had the reception for the wedding in the restaurant that they were all working at. They didn't have much money. I mean, they were still, you know, it, was, it was still pretty tight. So they had a very small group of people coming around for the wedding. And they the guys basically rolled up their sleeves, went into the kitchen and cooked the wedding reception <laughs> meal
1: for everyone. <laughs> well, that's lovely. So yeah. you spent your early childhood in Rockingham, south of Perth. Would that mm. have been like the classic Aussie beachside childhood for your early childhood, Crispin? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We were close to the beach where our
0: place was. And You know, I remember a lot of times going down to the beach with Dad and building sandcastles, exploring the the limestone coastline around there. And I distinctly remember, you know, I smelled the sand dunes, the smell of that that salty air. It was something Mm. that's very strong in my memory in that period. Absolutely. What language did you speak at home as a small boy? Actually, my first language was Cantonese which is very strange because I don't actually speak very fluent Cantonese now. In fact, very little at all. But for the first five, six years, mum was a live-at-home mum. Dad would work at the restaurant um, down in Rockingham and mum took care of us. So we spent a lot of time at home. And if you look at the home videos, I'm speaking very fluent Cantonese. But it was until when I got into primary school, pre-primary, that's when things started changing and I, I picked up a lot more English quite quickly.
1: Yeah. But was that a problem
0: for you to begin with once you started going to school? Yeah, so that was an interesting kind of period um, in that transition going from a home life into school where suddenly I was in an environment where I had a lot of people speaking English. And I actually developed this, I don't know if I would say I was mute, but I definitely kind of withdrew from from the class because I think at that time I was quite confused about code switching from Cantonese to, to English And so my teacher at the time suggested to my mom that I actually go and see a speech therapist. So I have these memories of being in this hospital in Rockingham, walking through the corridors and and, and being in this room that was full of books and toys and other kind of tools that the speech therapist used to help us. And it was from that that they recommended that I do speech and drama as part of my development. So my parents... After that, put me into youth theater schools, through primary school, which helped my confidence, helped develop my speech. But I think a very unfortunate side effect for them was that I became very interested in the arts. <laughs> and you're an actor today. <laughs> and I'm an actor today. <laughs> Perhaps not what they quite had in mind for you back then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I didn't think that it was such a, such a long-term investment. But, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I didn't become a lawyer or a doctor or, or an engineer. I, I went into the arts. So they planted that seed
1: very, very early in my development. <laughs> So, when you were six, the family moved to Perth and they set up the restaurant, the Man Lin. How different was it for you at the age of six?
0: Yeah, so we moved up back up to Perth for the restaurant and we moved into an area that I guess you could say back then was quite a rough neighborhood. I was put into a, pri- a primary school there, a public primary school there, and it was quite different. You know, back in Rockingham, we were one of the very few Asian families there. People kind of treated us as if it didn't matter what. Where we're from, it was just like a very strong community there. We we had a really strong sense of being part of, of a town there. But back up in Perth in the school, I, I distinctly remember being quite lonely. No one really – I didn't really have friends in that in that first year. And that was also when I kind of had my first experience with – with looking back on it, was was quite a racist thing. There was this boy that I remember of his gray, uh school uniform. He had this – for a distinctive brown mullet, uh, hair mullet, and mm. uh, he was kneeling on top of me um, uh, during lunchtime, and he was doing these ching chong eyes with the fingers, and he 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 spat on me, and. Um, Actually, during this podcast, doing some research, I was looking through some of my old archives of, from that period, seeing what I could find. I actually found an old school diary from that year in school, that first year up in Perth in this school. And I actually wrote in it that I actually had a fight with someone. And it was actually the last entry of the diary. And then after that, I know that my parents actually took me out of that school and put me into a Catholic school nearby to to get away from uh, I
1: guess from that bullying that I was experiencing in, in in year one. I remember kids like that, and looking back, I just always wonder whether they got that from home and brought it into the schoolyard. What do you think about that? Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. I was in an area there was a lot of new migrants, particularly from the UK, from areas where there was a bit of that kind of latent racism that came from that period, the national front of it. Perhaps maybe also because in that period, multiculturalism was also very relative new, and definitely I think that back at that time, a lot of us kids picked up things from from their parents, with whatever views these parents had about what was happening
1: in that period in Perth. Were there any teachers that stood up for you in that situation?
0: Yes, I had a teacher in that same public school before I left who really took care of me. Um, her name was Miss MacDonald. She would let me stay in the classroom at lunchtime and let me have my lunch there and just do my thing. And she became quite a Good family friend. She would check in on us and she'd actually come to the restaurant when we had the restaurant uh, later on and have, have meals and catch up with us. And we stayed in touch up to the point where even when I got married, she actually came to the wedding, which was about 13 years ago. Oh, that was really right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's been there, and she's always been a part. She's always been there. And one thing I remember distinctly, which I was always really kind of impressed by, she always had this really sleek
1: sports car that she drove around. And I was really kind of like, wow, this creature really cool. So your parents set up the restaurant, the Man Lin. What are your memories of the Man Lin? How would you, how do you describe it? What does it look like in your memory? Oh my gosh, there's so many memories about that restaurant.
0: It's so ingrained in me. It's been with me for almost 30 years, that place. So the Man Lin was one of the rare few restaurants at that time that was a standalone building and it had this distinctive Chinese style pagoda roof. And It was a bit of a landmark in some ways. You know, people would say, you know, go down this road, turn left, and you just, you know, just stop by near the the restaurant with the Chinese roof. It was one of those places that you could kind of see from long distance. A total landmark. Mm. Yeah, it was something you give directions with. And it was, you know, your typical suburban Chinese restaurant. You know, the ones that serves the sweet and sour pork, the spring rolls, (laughs) the chow mein, the chow mein exactly. And all the customers were these white Australians, and not there weren't many Asian customers because, you know, they'd walk in and they see their menu and they just go, this isn't an authentic real Chinese
1: <laughs> restaurant menu. So your dad and, and his twin brother were, were doing the cooking at the restaurant. What was it like to observe your dad and his brother in action? Oh, they were going crazy. I mean, they'd have four woks
0: going at the same time, one for each hand. One person's <laughs> doing the fried rice constantly. One person's pumping out the Mongolian lamb. The other person's doing all the seafood it was constant flurry of hands and walks and clattering and flames shooting up. It was quite a sight to see. And how about your mum and your auntie? What was their role at the restaurant? So they worked the front of the restaurant. They worked the dining room. So they went out there, um, mixed with the customers. They were taking their toakei okay orders. And so it was a, re- a really smooth kind of operation. My, that, but then I also remember my auntie also had the role of also washing the tablecloths for the restaurant. So there's 20 tables. So you've got 20 tablecloths, or at least sometimes even 40. If you, if you do two sittings in one night. And every time I go to her house to visit, there'd always be these red tablecloths constantly hanging out to dry in the backyard, you know, on the Hills hoist or something like that. You know, we weren't going to take it out to a laundromat and pay someone to do it. We'll do it at home. It's no problems. And she even had like the commercial commercial ironing machines and you know, everyone's those really big metal rollers that's heated and she's just rolling it through so that was quite a sight to see her you know, have a place. And what sort of hours were your parents putting in at that restaurant? Dad was working there seven days a week and you know his day would start at 10 11 o'clock in the morning and then he'd finish up maybe 10 11 at night and sometimes past midnight it was a particularly busy weekend and mum would work maybe five six days a week. And then other times she'd look, um, look after us. But because they were working long hours, my brother and I would be left to um, when We were particularly young. We were left with our neighbors who babysat us. So I had, um, I had an Italian family that looked after us for a while. We had a British family that looked after us for another time. So I only saw my dad for like two, two hours a day maybe in the morning before he went to work. And and then maybe on the weekends I might catch them a little bit longer. But they worked
1: really hard for most of that time, of the restaurant, six, seven days a week. So then we get to the mid to late 80s. Yeah. And these posters start appearing around Perth. Do you remember these posters as a little boy? I do. I do. They were everywhere. You couldn't really miss it.
0: There were different sizes. They were like the, like the size of your palm all the way up to like, you know, those big A3 posters that you see on the side of the of a building They'd be on lampposts, they were on bus stops. There were some that were even posted on our parents my parents' restaurant. They had some of those posters posted on their door. And also at the bus stop across the road from the restaurant, I remember seeing those same posters as well that said Asians out. It had caricatures and you know, it's horrible caricatures of, of, of what they thought Asian people looked like, and you know, of the buck tooth and the slanty eyes. And did you think that when you looked at that, did you think they're talking about me? Yes, I recognized that. I, I recognised them as being about me. But also at the age of eight, it didn't... I didn't understand the hatred or what it meant about where they saw me. I, I didn't quite understand the messaging at that time. It was only only later on, as I was a little bit older, when I was reading newspapers, I, of course, was a more mature, that I understood what those messages
1: meant. So then the 1st of September... 1988, you were eight years old. What do you remember about that night? I
0: remember me being in bed and hearing the phone ring and I remember waking up and hearing it, um, hearing Dad answering the phone and I remember him swearing and the phone kind of clattering down to the table and then the footsteps of Dad running out to the car and then driving off and seeing the headlights kind of swish across the, the windows and the shadows are moving then I fell asleep again. And then the next set of memories that I have, they're kind of like little vignettes. There, there was this moment when we arrived at the restaurant on the way to school. Mom said that we should stop at the restaurant first on the way to school. And I remember seeing the crime scene tape around the restaurant, this yellow tape. And <laughs> eight-year-old me thought it was quite exciting. I thought it was something from a movie. I thought it was something, that was something that was quite exciting to see. It was a novelty. And then I remember also you know, looking, peering through inside the restaurant and through the, the dining area, and I remember seeing the, the Chinese lanterns, the black Chinese lanterns, and they had melted. And the plastic had melted from the ceiling down to the floor, and it was almost like these black grotesque stalactites that was in the foyer along the walls of the of the dining room. But I don't remember at any point my parents ever saying to me that the restaurant had been firebombed, that this was an attack. On that day, my parents at that point didn't think of anything of being a racist attack. They thought it was just, you know, maybe a gas leak. They were still very really quite confused about what was happening. But, I mean, I wasn't really kind of briefed subsequently about what it all was happening and why it happened. Did you take a souvenir
1: from the scene for yourself?
0: Oh, yes. I remember being handed, I don't know how I got it, but I got handed, I think from my mum, this tumbler that was covered in smoke. It was kind of soot and blackened and it had a very strong smell of smoke. And I took it to school and I did a show and tell with it. Um, You did a show and tell from an artefact from the burnt-out restaurant? Yeah, on the day that it happened. I don't know, I wish I knew what I had actually said. Like, how did I explain that? How did I explain that to the class? Did I just say, my restaurant was on fire today and here is a glass from it? I wish I, wish I could remember what the reaction was to that. So when did it become
1: apparent that the, the fire at your parents' restaurant was no accident, Crispin? So on that night of the firebombing, it
0: wasn't just our restaurant that was firebombed. There was actually another restaurant that was firebombed a few hours earlier, which was the uh, China City restaurant in Como, which was only about 15, 20 minutes drive away from the restaurant. So already it was a little bit of suspicion, but no one really knew who had done it. I think when the third restaurant was firebombed, which was two or three months after our restaurant was firebombed, that's when things started to click and definitely amongst the restaurant owners, definitely amongst my parents and the people that they knew, they knew that there was something very suspicious, something that was, that, that we were being targeted. At that point still, I don't think they necessarily thought it was the workings of the neo-Nazis. They thought it could have been triad gangs trying to do some kind of extortion they thought that it also could have been something. You know, or they thought that it was just a bunch of hooligans, You know, just a bunch of ragtag hooligans who were just trying to cause trouble. It never occurred to them, at, at that point at least, that these were actually the works of a much more organised, more structured
1: organisation. So that brings us back to the posters that had been appearing mm-hmm. all over Perth with the Asians Out slogan. One, in fact, as you said, had been... Plastered on the door of the family restaurant before it had been firebombed. They were branded with the words the Australian Nationalist Movement or ANM. What do we know now? What do you know now about the Australian Nationalist Movement? Well, they were a semi paramilitary group and they were led
0: by a man by the name of Jack Van Tongeren, who also was a Vietnam vet. And he was heavily influenced by the ideology of neo Nazism and his aim was to establish a white Australia and he had followers, uh, members who shared the same sentiment and they ran a military training camp up in Bindoon, the country. They had an underground bunker up there. They were stashing firearms, cash, and they were actually even training themselves in a firing range on that site with the firearms. And in order to fund all of this, they were committing burglaries, breaking into warehouses, stealing equipment, and and using that to fund their posters and any other activities they were trying to embark. I mean, they really had, they were really determined. They had a a plan. I mean, these guys went as far as even running for state election. They actually ran for one of the seats in state election. And fortunately, they didn't get far but they only got a, a couple of hundred votes, so they were nowhere near. But, I mean, they were determined. They were fully determined to uh, set things in motion about
1: establishing a white Australia and driving away Asians from it. Groups like that always want to make themselves, puff themselves up to make themselves look bigger and more popular than they really are. I remember around about this time, and certainly the years before this, Crispy, in, uh, the, in the punk scene, there were, the punk scene was very ideologically anti-racist and anti-fascist, You had the Dead Kennedys, who was a kind of a leading band of that period, which had that song, Nazi Punks, F Off. But around (laughs) the fringe of the punk scene, there were racist skinheads at the same time. So they're going to the same gigs, who, fascinatingly enough, their favourite music was ska, which is, of course, music developed by (laughs) Afro-Caribbeans, but that never seemed to bother them at the time. Did this campaign by the Australian nationalist movement sort of embolden the local skinhead scene in Perth at the time? Absolutely. They... Even went as far as using them
0: as henchmen, I mean, they involved some of those members in their activities as well, which was very scary. And that was something that I only just discovered in this podcast during the research. I had no idea that um, there was this whole scene between this, uh, with the skinheads and the punks. I was very young at that time to really know. And, and the irony is, is that the punks who were on our side, the anti-fascist groups, they've been the people that my parents would have told me to stay away from. Right. because of how they looked and their hair and their clothes and all that, not knowing really that actually these guys were actually on our side trying to
1: fight these racist skinheads. Had the consciousness of this sort of filtered up into the broader community in Perth, or was this something that was sort of happening below the radar? It was below the
0: radar. Even when we talked to one of the punks, they they admitted as well that the mainstream Australians even then really weren't aware of what was going because these were... There were skirmishes, you know. There were, and maybe from the outside, it just seemed like they were just fighting amongst themselves. But they were actually fighting for a much bigger idea, a bigger, a bigger
1: reason. Maybe they were just seen as hooligans, perhaps. So at this time, Jack Van Tongeren's name started bubbling up. Was he starting to get a, a, a profile for himself in the Perth media?
0: Yeah, he was seen as a bit of an oddity. I mean, the idea of this man who was wearing this powder blue suit. He had this comb over hair, this mustache. In fact, one of the investigating police officers uh, kind of said he described him as a Hitler clone. And this man was just kind of walking around with his followers, wearing who all had uniforms of their own as well, his khaki uniforms. It was a bit of a sight. And I think the media kind of jumped to that thinking that it was a bit of an oddball of his kind of Hitler wannabe walking around proclaiming that he knew what society needed or what he that, you know, the Asians need to leave. And I think in some ways, it gave him a bit of a platform for him to talk about his views, because they thought that his views somehow made for good, good news. So that was an unfortunate thing. And I think in some ways that enabled or perhaps maybe encouraged more people to share those very horrible views uh, more openly. And definitely the community, the Asian community felt those effects, you know, people, were spitting at them, calling out, yelling names at them on the streets. So it really had quite a presence in, in Perth at that
1: time. How did you, as a boy at the time, become aware that Perth's ninja community, and there was such a thing, had taken interest in these racist attacks? So this ninja group was uh, started by a man called Jong
0: Ang. Jong Ang is this um, Singaporean migrant who just arrived in in Australia in 87 and The minute he landed, he saw all these posters around um, saying Asians out. And he was quite disturbed by that. And he felt that the Chinese community wasn't doing enough to speak up and speak out about this and and get the authorities to do something about this. So he took it into his own hands to run this, to start up this ninja society, this ninja uh, school. And he had the full ninja outfit and everything on. And he had this incredible presence and he, he advertised that he was providing a hotline service to the community, the Asian community, to say, if you have any problems, if you're getting any harassment, call us and we'll come down and assist. And I think when he made that announcement, the media just jumped on that. I mean, the idea of ninjas being thrown into the mix, fighting <laughs> neo-Nazis on the streets. I mean,
1: it's not funny, but it kind of is. Like, dial a ninja. That's wild. It is. Dial ninja. Mm. Exactly. And the
0: media just... Lap that up and unfortunately i think they didn't take it seriously i think they didn't really address what really john was trying to kind of make a point of is that we need to be
1: heard you need to see how scared this community was but there is some merit in having a a public figure like john ang stand up and say this is wrong and we're not going to stand for this and we're going to stand together against it isn't there yeah, he was a very strong
0: part of my um, my memory as uh, as a kid growing up, and maybe it didn't help the fact that at that point, teenage Ninja, ninja Turtles was just coming out <laughs> on TV. Right. So, you know, it was kind of like, oh wow, there's a real life ninja in here in the streets of Perth doing good. It really kind of was something that was seen in my mind. But that's the interesting thing is that I only found out in the research of this podcast that actually John, his wife, actually is in a social dim sum group that my mum is a part of, my mom and dad are a part of. So we were trying to find Jong-ang. I mentioned it to my mom saying, oh, yeah, I'm trying to find out who this guy, where this guy um, is now. What is he doing now? This Jong-ang, the Dala ninja guy. And my mum was like, oh, I think his wife actually um, has a dim sum with us. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Is it that easy? Um, I mean, that's Perth, right? And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> got mum to tap the wife on the, the shoulder and, and actually John <laughs> rang me up and said actually um, my wife told me to call you up <laughs>
1: The long reach of the Dim Sum group in Perth Dim Sum Diplomacy Dim Sum Diplomacy weird. indeed <laughs> You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/conversations. So Crispin, we get to 1989. And there's another attack on a Perth Chinese restaurant, the Ko Sing restaurant in Linwood. The police investigation revealed that this attack was different from the other ones. It wasn't a Molotov cocktail hurled through a window. It was a bomb, an actual bomb that had been placed inside the restaurant and wrapped in masses of fencing wire. Perth had been, as you say, kind of sort of sleepwalking through these attacks. How did the use of an actual bomb change things in Perth and with the police, the WA police in
0: particular? This definitely took things to another level, the use of an explosive in a Chinese restaurant. And what really disturbed me when I I dug into the details of this particular bombing was that the fact that, as you mentioned, it was wrapped in fencing wire. And when the police were examining the crime scene, this wire had turned into shrapnel and had embedded themselves in the roof, the ceiling, the floor, it was everywhere. I think that was what was alarming for the police. It then made them wonder, why would you want to wrap an explosive with wire like that?
1: That really raised the stakes at that point. Now, Jack Van Tongeren, the leader of the Australian nationalist movement, denied involvement in those attacks. But when he was asked about these attacks by the media, he said, quote, extreme times call for extreme measures. What did that sound like to the police, I wonder? Well, I mean, it's very
0: clear that Jack saw that in order to achieve the aims of what the AM wanted to do, that he was willing to go as far as he felt was needed to do that. And I think the police read into that as being the case, which made it much more important for him to f- find the evidence and
1: get the opportunity to, to, to put these guys behind jail. So how did the police then establish a connection between the postering campaign of the Australian Nationalist Movement with these firebombing attacks? Well,
0: it was really in some ways. I mean, um, you know, leading up to that, the police have struggled to find evidence at the restaurant that linked them to the a and at the same time, though, the laws at that time with the postering, although the A&M's name was on those posters, the incredible part about this is that, first of all, it wasn't illegal back then to put posters up that incited racial hatred. It was illegal, however, to put up posters in the wrong place. So it became graffiti or vandalism. But the thing is, you had to be caught in the act of doing that. And actually, the A&M was caught. At one particular time, ironically, they were caught by a minister from the government, Gordon Hill. He was a multicultural and ethnic affairs minister at the time. But he also, before that, prior was also the police minister, but not at the time when he caught them. It was still too difficult for them to make that link. It only was a moment of sheer luck that they came across someone who informed them that they know of a house that was full of electrical stolen equipment. That these police went to that house and that they found AM propaganda inside that house. So then the police took the opportunity to stake out the place and waited to see who would come through the door. And it was at that point that three members from the AM came in. Of note was John Van Bliderswick, the right hand man of the AM to Jack Van Tongren, and also a Russell Willie. So the police, when the police interviewed them, they put pressure on them. And I think. Russell Willie realized he was facing a lot of charges for sto- um, for the stolen goods. So he decided to to turn on the AM. He, he became a police that- informant? He became an informant for them. That's right. Yes. He became the police informant for them. He was wired up and he was allowed to go back to the AM. And it was through his his work with the AM through the tappings that the police collected evidence. And that was when they finally were able to pin. On the A&M, that they were the ones responsible for the racist posters,
1: but also for the fire bombings. Jack Van Tongeren was eventually found guilty of 53 offences, including willful damage, assault, occasioning grievous bodily harm, arson, and causing an explosion. He was sentenced to 18 years in jail. The judge in the case called his actions a, quote, departure into the black depths of terrorism. Did that give some sense of I don't know, relief or justice to your family at the time, Crispin?
0: Yeah, it did. I think it really helped give some closure to the community. I think everyone was living in fear for a while because you had restaurant after restaurant being firebombed for over a period of months with the racist posters going around. And up to the point when Willie became informant, there was no, seemed to be no kind of resolution to this. So for, police to finally arrest and to put these men on trial was a massive relief because now it felt like as if they didn't have anything to fear about anymore in terms of
1: violence. So now we fast forward to 1996 at the federal election. Pauline Hanson was elected in the seat of Oxley in Queensland and in her first speech to parliament she gave an incendiary speech which was covered by all the TV networks where she complained that Australia was being quote swamped by Asians you were just in high school at the time. What kind of an effect did that speech have on your your mind and on how you felt about being someone who lived in Australia, Crispian? Well, there's this interesting period just
0: leading up to Pauline Hansen that I kind of went through, which it's not a very a part that I'm very proud of. But there was this period after the trial when the trials for the Ams went on, I was asked to record the news for my parents because they were working at the restaurant all the time. So I recorded the news every night for them. I would help them cut out the newspaper clippings for the trials and everything like that. And they did their own as well and put into a scrapbook. And during that time, I was about 10 and about to go into high school as well. And I, I kind of started reading up and understanding what had happened and understanding that, wow, we were actually targeted by racists. They didn't feel that I belonged here, that the Asians didn't belong here in Australia, and you know I read up on what the things were saying about the stereotypes about Chinese, and it 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 it, it deeply affected me going through to high school. I felt very self-conscious. It made me question my who I felt I was. I finally found myself not being Australian enough suddenly, that I had to somehow prove it. I felt that I'd be very self-conscious about being. Chinese. And it got to the strange stage where I found myself kind of experiences internalized racism. I would be very self-conscious if my parents started speaking Cantonese outside in public. I became very conscious about being on family holidays and and being treated as a, as a tourist rather than being someone who lived here in Australia. I would occ up my accent. I would avoid having Asian friends. I just basically tried to assimilate and try to deny this part of me that was an essential part of me being Chinese. So when Pauline Hansen came onto the scene with that speech and suddenly I was seeing in parliament someone reinforcing that, it kind of just shook me up. And maybe also at that same time, I was also working in my parents' restaurant more. I was washing dishes, but also working in the dining room. And the thing is, you have to remember my parents' restaurant, it was full of white Australians. It was this place where we were serving Chinese food to these white Australians. And my mom had a community around her. We had this community of friends, you know, people that we went and saw, customers that came regularly. We knew their, their orders beforehand. We went to their funerals, We went to their weddings. I was part of this community where suddenly I did belong here. I could be Australian and I could be Chinese. And when Pauline Hanson came in with that speech, it made me really kind of reassess and really look around me what exactly I had in front of me. Because she said that we were being swamped by Asians, that we didn't belong here, that we needed to go back to our own country. What does that mean? Like, I was born and raised here in Perth, in Australia. If I went back to well, Hong Kong, which is where my parents originally came from, if I went to Hong Kong now... I wouldn't be able to speak Cantonese. I would instantly be called. Um, well, I know this for a fact. Some of my family members in in Hong Kong, my distant family members, have called me a banana because they say you're yellow on the outside but you're white on the inside. And and so you know, I it really kind of shook up my sense of my identity, and it really made me kind of work up. Well, what, who are you, Crispin? What are you, and where where do you sit? How do you how do you identify yourself in this world where you have to, you're living on the fence between two worlds in some ways. You have your parents from the old country and then you're in this new country. So interesting twist, Pauline Hanson, of anything really kind of gave me a sense of who I was. It really shook me up and made me, it gave me clarity. It galvanised how I saw myself
1: as being an Australian Chinese boy. In 2002, Jack Van Tongeren was released from prison after serving 12 years of that 18-year sentence. He denied he'd been involved in terrorism, but was there ever a connection established between him personally and the attack on your family restaurant back in 1988? Yeah, that came out in the court trials that he actually
0: was directly involved in the firebombing of my parents' restaurant. And and there's a funny story that comes out of that in, in, in a way. So what they did to our restaurant was they had these... Uh, jerry cans of of petrol and they were spraying petrol into the eaves of the restaurant. And then they were going to light a Molotov cocktail and then throw the Molotov cocktail through the windows into the restaurant. Now, the thing was with those sprays that they were using to put up, they were leaking and their petrol was leaking onto Jack Van Tongra's arms. His sleeves were covered in petrol. So when he lit up that Molotov... Not only did the light Molotov light up, his arms lit up. So he drop kicked it. He apparently drop kicked the Molotov. It flew into the window and exploded and did its thing. But not only that, he then dropped down to the floor and
1: started rolling on the ground on fire. So So, are you telling me he was in danger of becoming the sole fatality of his own terrorist attacks here? Exactly. Exactly.
0: I mean, imagine in you know, his restaurant's on fire in the background, and this guy's rolling in—you know—he's in you know, his, his you know army fatigues, rolling around the ground on fire. It was just—it's—it's a, it's a classic movie moment. It's, it's, its always a moment that's been burnt in my mind. So Not if, half as much as it's burnt into his arm by the sound of things, though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. But this is the thing about this—it's like there's this whole thing about the A like there were there was sinister, but there was also this aspect, but that, that were also kind of like these amateurs as well. It's a strange kind of... Um, idiocy. Kind of idiocy in amongst all mm-hmm. of this kind of
1: calculated organisation that they were trying to be. In the early 2000s, Crispin, you made a discovery about Jack Van Togram when you looked into his background. Tell me what you found out about his background. So after the polling hands, I went, to, I went into university
0: and in one of my school assignments, I felt like it was a good idea to try and use... The story of my parents' prior restaurant bombing is part of that exercise. It was an exercise in film documentary. I was doing a a film minor in university. And so I thought, I'll just do a little mini doc on my parents' restaurant. So I started digging through my parents' scrapbooks and the videotapes that I helped them record when I was younger. And I came across an article that I I, I must have missed. And there was an article that describes how actually Jack Van Tongeren himself was actually Eurasian. He actually had a father who was half Dutch, half Javanese, and his mother, I believe, was Irish. So you had the AM, the Australian Nationalist Movement, a group that was trying to create a white Australia, being led by a man who was Eurasian.
1: How did that sit with you
0: once you found that out? That blew my mind. I was trying to. Understand that. I mean, why? First of all, like, why are all these white Australians following a Eurasian man to be a part of this, which just kind of did not make sense? And I had to unpack that.
1: But In none this of this strange... makes sense. None of this makes sense. Like I said, skinheads get their music from Afro Caribbeans. Yes. White yes. nationalists go for Chinese meals all the times. Often they have these backgrounds to it. It's, it's, maybe it's got nothing to do with. We're, at, we're at well outside the realms of logic here, I think, Chris. aren't we?
0: You know, exactly. And you know, there's a funny story about that. So Russell Willie, the guy who turned on the AM, he, he was involved in the, in the second bombing of the Kosing restaurant with the mining explosives. And he actually mentioned in this documentary found called Nazi Supergrass. He mentions in it that actually he only lived a couple hundred meters away from the Kosing. And it was actually his wife's favorite restaurant. Oh. And it was a shame he mentioned about fire bombing restaurant because they could really good beef black bean. It's, it's, it's just mind-boggling. Like you say, it just does not make sense. But, however, with Jack, there was something that was very interesting about this, this aspect of his story about being Eurasian, which I kind of connected to. And that was the fact that I kind of understood... It seemed to me that there was just some kind of self-internalized racism going on here. Because we also found later on a letter... That his mother had written to the to the media who basically said that, as a child living in Australia Jack himself also had experienced racism for being Asian and I too of course experienced that racism as a as a child as well and Jack was a big part of that and I remember this sense of self internalized racism I was going through in high school and it kind of just it just was an interesting intersection that I found with, with Jack, that this man would go to the depths of being so assimilated, so, so, so this need to belong or some way to identify himself, that he would go as far as stripping himself of that part of him, this part of him being Japanese and embarking on this
1: campaign of, of terrorizing Asians, people that he was a part of in that community. Do you think he saw it in these binary terms, that he could, well, this is pure speculation, but do you think he perhaps thought to himself, well, I can stay with a marginalized group, or I can join the bullies? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. It was a survival instinct, maybe. And it didn't help that when he was in the war for the, in Vietnam, that you're in a war where your enemy, you have to dehumanize your enemy in order to engage them. Who knows how that
1: war affected his own sense of who he was as well when he came back. But perhaps there's more to it than that, Crispian. Mm. This is, again, speculation, but I've heard him talk and he does have this super thick Aussie accent, Yes, real super thick old-school Aussie accent. Mm. And if you wanted to do that, if you wanted to side with one group over the other, you could just be that guy, that muttering old guy that sits there muttering the odd racist slogan here and there around the family table. But to Mm. form an actual neo-Nazi group, to conduct terrorist attacks, that's something else. It is, and
0: I really, I would love to find out from him, to understand that. I mean, because that's a very deep hole to fall down. And I can't think of a rational explanation for that unless I talk to him and find out more. But to be able to strip away that part of you is is terribly sad. I I have this really conflict of feelings when I think about what he's done to himself and how he's shaped his own identity. So I have this weird sense of pity for him and at the same time disgust because, I mean, the guy personally firebombed my parents, my family's restaurant. I mean, that that can never be excused. But it brings me into this... It makes me want to talk to him because I, I also see this as some kind of Asian Australian story in itself. Um, you know, uh, he's a migrant himself. What is that actually? It's another story that needs to be heard. I need to understand that. Uh, it's, it's a weird obsession that I have that to
1: try and understand what that's all about. Like I said earlier, one of the tactics of such groups is to puff themselves up and make themselves look bigger, more popular, yeah. and have more community support than they really do. They may try to make themselves look like spokesmen for a great big silent majority in Australia. When you look back upon that, did you ever believe that, that they spoke for a silent majority of deeply racist, hostile Australians? Or did, you, was it, did it become clear that that wasn't the case? No, I didn't think it was ever that sense that we
0: were against some kind of silent majority i think it was very clear from the outset after the after the firebombings of my parents restaurant that clearly this group was in the minority they were a very loud minority and a violent minority but it was very clear also that we had an incredible supportive multicultural diverse friendly community and, and australia is that essentially you know, when my parents reopened the restaurant four months later, you know, the restaurant was packed. And if anything, if anything, the beautiful irony of this whole campaign that these, the AM was trying to inflict on the Chinese community is that it actually brought the community closer. Our restaurant thrived after that firebombing. We had so much business afterwards. Everyone wanted to come in support and they want to hear the story about what the AM did. You know, the police would come every day. They, you know someone from the different districts in the, in the area would come and they'd get takeaways and check in on us and everything like that and it clearly wasn't uh, a case that we felt like they were speaking for a greater majority by any stretch. but having said that, I think we need to also remember that the amount of damage they did inflict as a small group, the kind of violence the physical violence, the, the, the mental violence, what they did to the community, creating that fear has a consequence.
1: What are some of the lingering effects you've observed since making this podcast amongst talking about people in post-Chinese community?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I really wanted to do in this podcast was to kind of give a voice to uh, uh, to my community who was involved in that time because it was a time that was quite difficult we were trying to make a living working you know, six, seven days a week. I mean, all the restaurants were working six, seven days a week. There was no time to really process those feelings and thoughts. My parents never talked to me about racism. My parents never told me what, what it was all about. Even during the trials, my parents didn't actually sit me down and say, hey, Crispin, let's talk about what these guys did and how do you feel about that. No one processed that with us. And when we were trying to talk to the Chinese restaurant owners about this podcast, a lot of them still didn't want to talk to us about it. A lot of them, I mean, most of them are in their 70s now, 80s, the restaurant owners. They didn't want to talk about it because, one, they were either still scared or they didn't feel the story was relevant to them anymore. Like they say, well, what can I do about it? What can I contribute? Nothing that, that I say is going to help change things. But what was interesting was when we started talking to the kids of these Um, restaurant owners, the restaurant kids as we nicknamed them, people like myself who are now in their 30s and 40s, even 50s, we started uncovering that as second generation immigrant kids, we were in this kind of purgatory space where we were exposed to these horrible elements of racism, yet we didn't know how to process them, how to communicate with them. Um, We were told to ignore these uh, attacks, to ignore racism, to ignore these bullies, and just to you know, keep our heads down and work hard. You know, it's that model minority kind of mentality. Don't stir shit up. And so I think that's what we're only just uncovering now is just actually how much racism can, can hurt a community without necessarily achieving its goals.
1: To stand back and look at this, what we really see was that in the late 80s and early 90s, a concerted terrorist campaign was launched against one segment of the community in Perth and which had its knock-on offense for the effects for the community as a whole. Was it seen as terrorism at the time? Because if this isn't terrorism, Crispian, nothing is terrorism. Yeah. At least initially, there
0: was no... It never crossed the minds, I think, in, in, the, in the eyes of the community, in the minds of the police, that this was some sort of domestic terrorism, that these were the... The, the, the actions and, and, um, of, of a terrorist group um, and maybe that was maybe why if things took a long time to take to take action why the police was maybe slightly slower to respond that they didn't see I mean in some ways the, the police probably saw these the actions of this group, the posters and all that, as, as being misguided they weren't seen as being harmful. they weren't taken seriously you know the idea of Nazis walking around in Perth I mean that sounds something from Indiana Jones or something like that. But then however if you apply what, what we've experienced since 9/11 when we talk about terrorism now if you look back on that definitely everything that what these guys were doing definitely were the acts of of terrorism that we should treat it as being
1: Christine, mean it's a completely fascinating story and a amazing insight into this semi forgotten part of Australia's history that ought to be better remembered thank you so much thank you been listening to a podcast
0: of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.